Hey guys, this is Kale Lowry. And this is V Rivera. We're the hosts of Baby, Baby Mama's, Mama's No, no Drama. Drama. Every Tuesday, we talk about parenting, co parenting, lifestyle, and sex, pop culture, current events, and pretty much all the things you want in one podcast. So download and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Listen to us every Tuesday and join us with all the tea. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate y'all being here. Appreciate you supporting people to support us. Uh, don't forget to check out drdrew.tv and uh, other sources of streaming shows and things we got at drdrew.com. I want to get right to my guest because she is our dear friend, Megan Dom. Podcast is a special place in hell, a new podcast co-host with Sarah Hader. Her regular podcast is The Unspeakable Podcast, theunspeakablepodcast.com. Please do check out that as well as her book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. You can get Megan's website or Amazon. Follow her on Twitter at, at Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N underscore Dom, D-A-U-M, and website is MeganDom.com. And the problem with everything is how I got connected again with Megan. She did a she did a L.A. Times editorial piece when lay people could just express their opinions in the L.A. Times about her appreciation of Adam Carolla, and that became, she immediately became Adam's favorite person for years afterwards. Uh, but we, we, she and I really reconnected. She sent me a galley of the problem with everything with this like very low key note, like, I, you might find this kind of interesting, <laughs> which was low key enough to get me to read it. And I was like, oh, this is one of my peeps. And now here we are, friends. So, Megan Dom, thank you. Always good to be with you, You Drew. as well. Thanks. Yeah, the problem with everything is it is it I, I understand it got you in trouble with the writing community for daring to speak your truth. <laughs> the writing community, yeah. yes. <laughs> is yes. That, would that be the about? The community of writing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it, I'm wondering if it has uh, – the perception has changed in recent months to years. Yeah, I kind of feel like it has. Yeah, that's what I So figured. the problem with everything, um, as I was writing it, the working title was "Woke Me When It's Over." Funny, so that kind of gives you the the yeah. idea of what the what the book is about. Um, but I will tell you what: I don't think you assailed the woke. I think you showed sort of astonishment that things were so different than when you were young, that's you, much right. younger. And yeah. and it was not really an assailing of woke. It was just like, how how did this happen? I never thought this. I never thought it's a self interrogation. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And it was really nothing that I haven't been doing my whole career. Yeah. You know, so I was an LA Times columnist. I wasn't just a lay person writing that piece about Adam as much as I would have tried. But, but was it a- was a time, it was in a time <laughs> when you could, a person could write an editorial and people could, a editorialist could express a personal opinion about something. Yeah. You, you know, now no. Uh-uh. Yeah. No, I was always, nobody could ever figure out what side I was on. So my <laughs> right. goal as a columnist was to make the left hate me and the right hate me. Yeah. Because that was, that's actually the job of being a thinking person person in the world, right? Um, Yeah. So the problem with everything, it's my sixth book. I've been doing this for a long time. And um, yeah, I just around, you know, you and I have talked about this, I think around 2014, 2015 or so, started to notice just a change in the in the overall tone of public discourse. Hmm. um, I mean, I remember the first time I'm curious if you remember this, the first time I saw somebody on Twitter say, I'm going to call you out. Right. So we didn't Mm. have the term call out culture yet. And we didn't have the term cancel culture. But it was like, I'm going to call you out because you said something that was just slightly off or something that could have been interpreted as like a little bit sexist or a little bit racist or whatever. And this just became part of the vernacular. And a lot of people who I was like 
I thought politically aligned with or just kind of like friends of mine and we were all on the same page suddenly were piling on to this this sort of mode of being in the world where they were looking for grievance everywhere mm. and I found it incredibly counterproductive mm. and just a really crappy way to live frankly yeah and then your book was sort of a questioning you know where this came from given where you were when you were younger yeah so i'm a gen xer very solid gen xer i grew up in the 70s and the 80s um and- I, I want you to know there were boomer echoes in your experience well because i'm at the end of the boomer and i recognize what you were experiencing yeah and you know it's funny because this is something i actually talked about in my previous book the un- the unspeakable which which came out in 2014 and is so much more quote-unquote politically incorrect than the problem with everything but at that time the book was received with open arms it won awards it was given a rave review by roxanne gay in the new york times can you believe it and it's so much more out there than than the problem with everything but yeah i actually mentioned in that book that i feel like the 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 gulf between the millennials and the generations that came before them is so vast so much has changed in the culture over that time that i feel like i have more in common with with a boomer who might in some cases not you but in some cases might be 20 years older than i am yeah. than with a millennial who might be 7 years younger than i yeah, am there been that's such true. radical shifts in the culture well it, one of the things that boomers had was something called the generation gap are you, are you familiar with that term well yes but in what context do you mean here well then it was sort of we were the cool kids that we when you look back on it we were actually glorifying sociopathy that was that was the that was the cultural oh. uh, iconic, which was the rock star drug addict. I mean, somebody who was a sociopath, maladaptive behaviors. Uh, um, or actually, this is so interesting. Wait, say more about this. Yeah, because I I've been aware of this for some time. That I because I, I like like when we elected a student body president at my college, we elected somebody that was completely. Just a drug addict, <laughs> just really? was on the outs, and but we elevated those people. And think, of, I mean, think, just think about the behavior of drug addicts in the seventies and the eighties. Just it was disgusting, it was de- de- criminal. Yeah, but it was. But that was the highest order. Yes, yes. You know, that was what you wanted Revere. to be like, revered. And I've always wondered why did we revere the sociopath? And it was a stark contrast with the skinny tie, white shirt, thick glass. Mad white men. dude, yes. mad men. We really, it was, it was more. What we had more in our head was the guys you saw at Mission Control in Houston. Yes, the standing yes. around. Those total were the, nerds. Those the were the guys that yes. we were the opposite of. Right, and we had huge value, and and they couldn't understand us. Was our thing, and and by the way, huge hurry to get the hell out from under our parents who couldn't understand us. Millennials are in no hurry. <laughs> They're happy to be dependent. They're happy to – actually grateful too. They, my kids have expressed gratitude, which I'm you – know, <laughs> Well, that's but, you, but you're a special Well, parent. but, but I, I, I'm appreciative that they're grateful, but I have I'm, I'm anxiety. I want them to flourish and be away, and I can't understand that they don't have the same – that I don't drive them crazy the way my parents drove me crazy. Yeah. And, and I'm, sure, I, we, I'm sure we do, though, in a different way. And, and so it's very – uh, it's very bewildering. But anyway, so so back then it was the sociopath. Now it's uh, probably the histrionic or the narcissist that is sort of elevated. It's the cluster B personality. Yeah, cluster Bs are yes. all in charge. And and I've been saying for some time that 
I saw that transition. I think I've told you this before. I saw it happen working in the psych hospital. I saw the actual diagnosis sheets shift to all cluster B over the course of about five years. And by the end of the 80, early 90s, it was all cluster B. Oh, that's so fascinating. And more recently, I started thinking when, when I'm watching all this acting out and histrionic behavior and using things as cudgels, political instruments and social media, back in the late 80s, early 90s, <clears throat> Every borderline patient that came in the hospital, and I mean every one, had a minimum of 20 lawsuits under her belt. Mm. Minimum. So they used to use the legal system to act out their projective identification. Now it's the social media and the political system. Which is a lot more efficient. You don't have to hire a lawyer. And it's also called a mob. You know, it's just – it's now how you get mobs going and it's – it's re- yes, and it's it's right. available all the time and you can – it's it's, you know, it's constantly morphing. See, I think that's why Johnny Depp and Amber Heard did us a favor. Oh. It made us look totally. at these things, that it's, it's, it's not all this way or all that way. It's a, it's a mess. He's a mess. She's a mess. But both people have a symptom complex that is very common. Yeah. So that's why my pinned tweet on Twitter is – Twitter, where personality disorders become careers. God, that's true. I think that summarizes exactly what I was seeing with the legal system uh, with the borderlines in the 90s. It's exactly, but the legal system figured it out and they started creating slap law and they stopped participating mm-hmm. in this. So they began realizing this is distortions and being, were being used. I don't know when everyone's going to wake up to what's, what you're saying here about the career in uh, projective identification. I'm so interested in this idea of borderline, though, because do you feel like it's one of those classifications that's being overused now? It, How I, do you I, even I define for, it? I thought that for years, but uh, certainly um, we know that cluster B is more common. It's just the case. That's just and cluster case. B is what? Narcissist, borderline sociopathy, and, and histrionic. I never imagined histrionic. I'm not super familiar with histrionic, so to see a lot of histrionic symptoms was a shock to me. All the delusional thinking, Nazis everywhere, blah, blah, blah. That's all delusional. That's not just paranoid schizophrenia? No, that's that's histrionic. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get COVID. I'm going to blah, 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 blah. Oh, I'm going to die. You know, just excessive, excessive. Everything's excessive. Right. And then uh, there's no moderation. It's all from one dramatic post to the next. And, and so so borderline is essentially uh, – there, there's borderline traits, narcissistic traits, not necessarily disorders, are definitely more common, definitely. Reason being, I have saw it evolve since the 90s. I predicted it. I said it was coming and it was our destroyed families. The, the amount of trauma, adverse childhood experiences in childhood create cluster B. It just does. And so we've been through a pandemic of 20 years of – Real serious chaos during childhood, and you get these phenomenon afterwards. I wanted I wanted a chapter in my book about narcissism about this, and I was going to. The only thing I could find that was similar was pre-revolutionary France, and I was going to. Yeah. I think I've told you I was going to yeah. write about that. They were like ah, too far fetched. No, no, no. <laughs> and I was like, there's going to be guillotines. I know this. Well, it's happening mob, now. There's going to be mobs. There's going to be guillotines. I just didn't know it was going to happen in social media. Right. I mean, and I know you've also talked about how when you were doing Love Line through the 90s, those people calling in Constant. were the trauma Constant. survivors. Constant. And so now we're seeing the the repercussions of Correct. that. And at the yeah. hospital, all trauma, yeah. all trauma. In the drug unit, all trauma. I, I used to t- say to people, if if you have bad enough addiction, you need to see me. It's 100% childhood trauma and, and real tra- real deal stuff. Hundred percent. And did people just not used to have as much trauma, or it wasn't identified well, as such? Th- these these are obviously the questions. We didn't have as much trauma. We we had at least stable. We at least 
create stable environments for childbearing. We at least did that. Because there were social norms in place. There was a taboo against leaving your family, there I guess. There were taboos against abortion, uh, against adoption and other things. Whoop, the abortion thing is something we should oh, talk about ding, that ding, too. Ding, ding, <laughs> so, We're going to get to that. So, it only took uh, s- <laughs> 17 minutes. <laughs> but, but the, 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 uh, so divorce was there was taboo, taboo stable families were the norm and and it helped it helped it, that's why we have families it's it's it, these are childbearing yeah. units that's if we don't want to bear children do whatever you want but if you want to bear children we know what's sort of optimal for that and yeah now, and i'm not taking aim at single moms and i'm taking aim at anybody i'm saying you have to create a stable environment for children however you have to do that yes so that's a radical position drew i know isn't that insane <laughs> it's an insane position <laughs> Yeah, and so so finally we've started looking at this thing called ACS, Average Childhood Experience, and, and measuring it and going, oh, ACS is associated with all kinds of problems later in life. You know, this was a revelation about 10 years ago. They, there was a famous study at Kaiser where they – it was called the Average Childhood Experience Experiment where they started noticing all the people coming to the ER, all the people, all the medical problems seem to have this thing of – they seem to have a lot of adverse experiences. Then they started measuring it. And of course, three three to five, you're in trouble. And it includes divorce, a family member incarcerated, drug use in the home, and domestic abuse, not even domestic violence. Those four things are so common. Mm-hmm. And you, you only need two or three of them to really start to have trouble. Right. So what are you going to do about it? I don't know. I guess wait for a new generation. <laughs> That's about all you can do. But Gen Z seems worse. Well, here's I the thing mean, about borderline. Yeah. Borderline. I don't think Gen Z is worse. I don't know. Well, the I want to get to that actually in a second. Okay. Because, but but border, I think borderline that, yeah. gets better in their 40s and 50s. They get a lot better spontaneously in their really? 40s and 50s. Really? Yes. So that's just one of the observations about borderline disorder. The reality starts to seep in. And and the trauma fades into the past, and they start to regulate better. So so maybe if ten fifteen years just automatically gets better. Maybe okay, but could we look at this like maybe borderline is extreme adolescence? Like that's one way to look at it. You know how they sometimes yeah. say autism is extreme maleness. Yeah. So maybe borderline is extreme adolescence. That, that is a reasonable construct. I don't know that it's an accurate scientific okay. construct, but that gets close to reality. I just thought of it right this yeah, second. Yeah, I like it. So I we like don't it. have to. We can yeah, I dig think it. about that. Right. Chaotic relationships, unregulated, yeah, just, poor self-concept, yeah. drug use, impulsive. The, the only thing I would say that's different is the way they manage emotions, which is borderlines, so much projection. Adolescents don't necessarily project that much. Borderline, borderlines always project out into the world their right. stuff. Right, And of course, what are we seeing right now? Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Uh, I have so many borderline questions, but I know that's not what we're here to talk about. Well, okay, so what is a high-functioning borderline? Because I feel like there's a sort of covert manifestation of it. Oh, for sure. A high-functioning borderline is somebody with traits. And the traits can be all the borderline traits or mild traits or few traits that are intense or no traits, you know, very few traits. It it fundamentally, fundamentally, the core of borderline gets played out interpersonally. So fundamentally, people with borderline traits have unstable relationships. You'd see chaos. chaos. That doesn't mean they can't have a marriage or can't have relationships. Just fundamentally, they're Mm -hmm. difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, Secondly, uh, uh, unregulated hostility particularly. Thirdly, uh, sort of unstable self-concept. Right. Impulsivity and then projection. Okay. So. All right. All right. I've got a particular person in mind, but – they're very I, I would common. have to pay you for that. And, and by the way, here's what here's one of the things I want. This is why I think Amber Heard and Johnny oh, Depp yeah. us a favor, is that the borderline suffer. 
they're it's not like they're not suffering. They're suffering a oh, little more like, than the people they're making suffering. That's right. their pain they're making you feel. Right. Okay? So we should empathy for borderline. I, I do really well working with borderlines because I'm I'm deeply empathic to them. I, I get it. Their their shit is they'll spin me around like a top, you know, but I if you can keep your feet on the ground, they're they're often very smart, very interesting, um, creative, yeah. all that good stuff. But they'll they'll make you feel bad. <laughs> yeah, the Johnny Amber thing was amazing because I I was really happy that it finally forced people to talk about how women can be abusive and be yep. emotionally abusive. Yep. So this is something that. Uh, Sarah Hader and I talk about on our new podcast. So I now have a second podcast because the world needs more podcasts. Yes, yes. I'm sure well, with you, aware. more Megan Dom podcasts. Yeah, I'm gonna, my goal is to have more podcasts. Well, Megan Dom podcasts are not just a podcast. Okay, They're well, Megan Dom oh, thank you. Okay, okay. But uh, so yeah, no. So Sarah and I, we have a 20 year age gap, um, and uh, you know, we actually started with the question. You know, we we were talking about a lot of these things, and we kind of started with the, this. You know. Fundamental question, why isn't there a female equivalent of Jordan Peterson? <laughs> That's okay. a good question. Yeah. And so there you know, should be. she and I – and it's interesting. You know, I'll give her credit. She's only like 30 years old. And so she – but she still is able to think about like how come nobody talks about women being abusive in, in relationships. And, mm-hmm. and so when I was 30 or when I was in my 20s, for instance, I mean the idea that – women could be abusers or like the idea of gaslighting. That's not a word we used back then. Mm-hmm. But the idea that in any kind of given domestic dispute um, or even domestic violence situation that anybody but the man would be at fault, like I, I don't think – I think when you're really young, it's hard to get your mind around that. Like if you're somebody in college and you did not – and you had a pretty normal upbringing, like your parents were not in an abusive relationship and you just kind of go with the program and you think, OK, well, you know, women are – you know will will tend to be the more oppressed class, et cetera, et cetera. I would have been shocked if somebody said, you know, no, Megan, it is true that women will accuse their husbands of abusing the kids in a ugly custody battle. That does happen. Now, when I was 20, I would have said that's a terrible thing to say. That's misogynistic, et cetera, et cetera. But you go through life and you meet people and you get older and you run into all kinds of people and you're Friends get divorced and you just see the world and you start to understand these things. And I think one of the things that happens is that the the online, the social media discourse is controlled by people with very little, I would say, life experience. They like to call it lived experience, but that's actually – have you noticed that like lived experience is the opposite of life experience? Let's think about this. What, tell me more. Well, because they love to say lived experience, but yeah. that really that's just only, means that's, that's just that's, anecdotal evidence. But it's also, but it's even sort of narrower. It's just it's like right now, my experience at this moment, my experience, as opposed to what right. have I learned right. from life? Right. It's like yeah. yes, it's like yeah, on this station is, right now. <laughs> right. I mean, if anything, history and philosophy and psychology has taught us you should constantly be skeptical of your own. Lived yes, experience. which I am. That the older you get, the more I doubt my that I even exist. Right. Then right. you just sort of cancel yourself out. That's right. But um, no, so it's, I, I really, the Amber Heard thing was amazing because it forced all of these people to, to, I mean, people who were really paying attention to say, okay, this is an abusive person. This is, you know, they're both complicit in certain ways, but she's really. Well, here's what I th- thought was important to bring to light that I hope people got from it that was a little more subtle, which is that People don't get that memories are extremely inaccurate. Oh, yeah. And experience 
is not even just the memory, which is a level of distortion, but the immediate experience as you walk away from it can be highly distorted. Johnny distorts it because he was wasted or in withdrawal. Amber distorts it because borderline severely distort experiences. I can't tell you how many times I was in a room with a patient, walked out, and the patient reported something. Just It just didn't happen. It's mm-hmm. why, I, why I never go in alone. I always have a female nurse there who can laugh with me at whatever insanity they report they believed happened in wow. that room. Yeah. I mean, really insane stuff gets reported, and they believe it. Yeah. That's what they experienced. They experienced some sort of weird touching or sexual abuse or some horrible attitude on my part or I yelled at them or all things that just didn't happen. And and that's their experience. And then memory distorts it even more. And that's what Amber was a good example of. She was just completely distorted everything because you could see the evidence didn't didn't uphold her experience or her memory. Yeah. And 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 that's, you know, there's a whole field of just eyewitness reports that shows how badly a normal person reports what they eyewitnessed. You're aware are you aware of that world? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh you mean these studies? Oh yeah, that that eyewitness accounts are very unreliable. Completely yeah. distorted. Yeah. Uh, but it's even in the setting of borderline or drug use, it's even more distorted. So yeah. both of them are severely distorted. Yeah. And and that why we can't deal with that, I don't know. You know, th- this whole believe everything everybody says is just way <laughs> out there. No, it's believe the evidence. It's not believe everybody. It's believe the right people. Believe the well, right kinds of people. The right box checking I people. I guess so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then back, the other thing is you mentioned divorce. Then then the, the way family law courts are, are set up, you are almost – required to lie they they just sort of, the attorneys just sort of tell you what to say mm-hmm. uh, and so people distort and lie horribly in divorce courts and then even if they're resistant to saying the things that the attorney wants them to say they start believing it right they start convincing themselves it happened oh yeah no the number of divorces that could have been not amicable but more amicable than they were oh, if the not divorce. for a I did a I did a I did a documentary called Divorce Corp where we we got into <laughs> it we we examined it a little bit it's it's bad yeah. it's bad anyway so let's go back to uh, a special place in hell oh. tell me more about it well we just um we we started it in uh late June uh Sarah Hader she is um like I said, she's a, she's only thirty years old. She is she has a really interesting background. She's um, originally from Pakistan. She mm-hmm. immigrated to uh, the U.S. to Houston actually when she was seven, um, and she grew up very religious in a in a Muslim family. And then she she was actually a kind of a sanctimonious little kid and, and teenager when she was growing up. And then she had a real split with the religion, and she right after college formed an organization called Ex-Muslims of North America. Mm. So she became very well known in the atheist space. Uh, you know, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. And um, she she was a you know, young woman in this kind of um, intellectual sphere. So she has like a really interesting background. She's incredibly um, – she's just very mature person. Like you would never – she's – yeah, she's really impressive. Um, but, you know, through being in that atheist space, she kind of got a whiff of a lot of this identity politics stuff and that kind of morphed into, you know, the sort of stuff you and I talk about. And so she, in the last year or so, has become much more interested in talking about these gender issues. And she's been writing on Substack um, about her feelings about, like, a lot of the 
gender ideology stuff the and excesses. what is a woman and the, the kind excesses. of the trans ideology. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she does it from the perspective of somebody who was born like in the, in the 90s. <laughs> and um, I, so she and I were both, you know, interested slash obsessed with this topic. And we just thought it would be interesting to have a conversation where we talked about this stuff. Um, but also just issues around the dating economy and the mating economy and the hypergamy and all the kind of stuff that, that Jordan Peterson talks about. We're going to do it in a hopefully way that maybe is a little bit more accessible and through the prism of our of our generational divide. Um, and it's interesting, too, because she is much more sort of normal than I am. She's married. She is a child. She lives like in a nice, normal, grown-up life. And I'm like this, uh, you know – childless uh, divorced person who eats over the sink you know happily so i don't oh, know all these things I, I just think make it dumb i think vagabond i just yeah <laughs> i just you know big dog uh no no real schedule <laughs> that's uh, uh well yeah. you fit right in here in los angeles that's most people it, you, you yeah oh yeah right no, it is, yes yes well, we're all itching to get away these days, but you got to think for a second and be prepared for the unexpected when you travel. And one of the best ways is with an Air MedCare Network Fly You Home membership. AMCN Fly You Home is all about you taking control of your care. If you get hurt or sick or hospitalized more than 150 nautical miles from home, they will transport you to a hospital of your choice in a medically equipped private aircraft, and you won't have to pay a dime out of pocket. They've also completed more than 18,000 missions and have over 30 years of experience. You can expect industry-leading care while recovering. Now, you're probably thinking this must be expensive, but it is as little as $134 a year for your entire household. And if you use code Dr. Drew, that's D-R-D-R-E-W, they will give you up to a $60 gift card when you join. If you're like me, you love getting out. I cannot recommend enough the peace of mind you feel with an AMCN Fly You Home membership. Just visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash Dr. Drew today and get up to a $60 gift card with code Dr. Drew. Again, airmedcarenetwork.com slash Dr. Drew and code Dr. Drew. All right, everyone. Grilling season is upon us. And whether you are a seasoned barbecue master or just starting out, I have a great tool that will help you not undercook or overcook your meat. Get exactly what you want. It's called a meter, sleek Bluetooth meat thermometer that tracks the temperature of your food and lets you know when it's ready to come off the grill. You follow the cook on your phone. That's right. So you don't have to keep checking up on it and constantly opening the grill and whatnot. You just do go about your business and you'll nail that perfect steak, juicy chicken every time with meter, super simple, super easy, perfect results. And we love it for the steaks because uh, our barbecue's outside and we want to go in the kitchen and watch some TV and then it lets you know when it's perfectly ready. It can be used in an oven, grill, smoker, air fryer, rotisserie, literally anywhere. It comes with cloud service so you can have limitless range. You can still monitor the barbecue while doing anything you want. Monitor your steaks or chicken in the app and this way you can kick back and relax. It's a perfect tool to level up your cooking skills and get 10% off with code DREW when you shop at meter.com. It is a meter, but it's spelled like the meat you're measuring. M-E-A-T-E-R.com. Get 10% off with code DREW at meter.com. M-E-A-T-E-R. That's 10% off on meter.com with code DREW. Fire up the grill and get cooking with meter. That's right. You won't be sorry. Jordan Harbinger, you know we love this guy. He's got a very brilliant guy. 
multiple languages, broad life experience, uh, certainly law degree, and a great show, The Jordan Harbinger Show. It, you should be listening to it. Apple named it one of the best of 2018. Each episode, a conversation with a different, fascinating guest. Like one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI. He gives you techniques on how to get people to trust you. Useful. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological discoveries in a, in a century. Jordan Harbinger, it will resonate with you. You'll love it. It's always practical, always insightful. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom. I love the Jordan Harbinger show. I think you will too. It is the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, Harbinger, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, so, so, yeah. so where do you guys align and where do you differ? Can you say in a simple way? Uh, I mean, I think we align in that we're both frustrated with um, the way the discourse kind of denies biological reality. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's become, you know, I, I did a whole project several years ago on choosing not to have kids. So I'm I'm in the, you know, rare. It's There are people out there like me, although we're certainly not the majority. You know, I... I have chosen not to have kids. I'm happy about that choice. And I, I did a book on it. I did an anthology of writers writing about this. And, you know, one of the things that kept coming up a lot is like, well, you know, don't talk about the biological clock. If you talk about that kind of thing, that's anti-feminist because you're telling women, you know, you're sort of policing women's choices or something. And, you know, it's funny because I did, I did a podcast interview one time and the host said something like, well, you know, it's terrible the way women get always, you know, lectured about the biological clock. And I said, well, the biological clock is true. I mean, that's a real thing. Yeah. Um, and to deny it is to be, you know, sabotaging yourself. And- I, I, by the way, what should be said is if you want to control your biological clock, go store your eggs when you're 22 well, yeah. and that kind of thing. But take accept reality and reality's terms yeah. and then manage accordingly. Well, and that's funny because, you know, that didn't exist up until uh-huh. recently. And that's uh-huh. another thing I think is really worth talking about. But anyway, I did this interview on the podcast and I said the biological clock is true. And they cut that part of the interview out like as if this was violence or something. Mm. And so Sarah is really interested, you know, she's got a big career, but now she's got a child and she's really interested in talking about just kind of the lies that we tell ourselves and especially the Isn't, lives that the left has told itself about what's possible. Wasn't this a conversation possible. 20 years ago? Didn't we have similar stuff being said? I said so too, but you know, she doesn't. It's funny because she actually said that she thinks like she hears from her peers things like oh, nobody told me that I, w- I wasn't going to be able to have kids after this age. And I actually said to her, really? Because I feel like we got that message in the 90s. Well, I, I remember th- – that's when the conversation bubbled up. I remember in the 90s I gave a lecture. I shared the podium with a woman that wrote a book. wish I could remember her name. She set out to interview all the most successful women in America to find out what what the common sort of qualities were that led to their success. And she said, I could not find one thing in common with them except one thing, and it was loud and clear on, in all of them. It was, it was Oprah and Diane Sawyer and all these people. She goes, they didn't have a child, and they were pissed. No one told them that they were told they could have it all. And they didn't prepare. And had they been had they been told, edu- properly educated, they would have oh. ma- managed it differently. They're pissed. I don't know that Oprah's pissed about not having a child. 
according to this woman who oh, did really? the interview with her. She may not publicly talk about it, but that's what this. Woman I mean, said. it's this. The other thing that nobody will talk about the fact that you, if if you are going to be a woman with a very very high status career, it's going to be very difficult to have children. And one thing that drives me crazy, like. When you look at these political figures, like somebody like Kamala Harris, who, you know, during the campaign, they had to make this big deal that even though she didn't have children, she was a stepmother and she was mama and she was very nurturing and all of this because they didn't want, you know, her to be an alienating figure. And the fact is, as we go on, for most women who are going to be at those levels, they're either going to have kids that they don't take care of or they're not going to have them. And so we need to accept those scenarios or well, radically I think, I think, restructure the economy, which is not well, going to happen. But, but I do think we do accept the, that they don't take care of. We, we try to come up with other alternatives so women can – a man could take care of them or a lesbian partner could take care right. of them. Right. You know, and, and not so, if you're going to be the vice president though at this point. No, I Your understand. lesbian partner no, I is <laughs> taking care of the kids <laughs> is not going to help you be vice president. Maybe too much. <laughs> but but, but I, what I'm saying is though but they're, they're, I feel like it's at least being – Nodded at a bit, yes, you for know, sure, more, more than it was even in the nineties. Yes, which is that you know you're yes, of course I can't do I can't do it all. I got to have some help, uh, and so fine, they go get some help, and you know let's figure right. this out. But it does kind of what the part that really is not said is to be done effectively. It's got to be somebody from the gene pool at least for the first five to seven years. Yeah, that sort of seems to be part of what's necessary. Yeah, even so, if it's grandma, even if it's grandma. And by the way, primates, grandma writ large, and it could be grandma. Maybe that's the way we do it. We well, just, that's have your been career. that way for generations. Yeah, so go have your career. And my mom, who had her career, yeah. now takes care of the kids. I mean, why not? But then people are going to start having to have kids much earlier. That's only going to work if people have kids in their twenties, right? Because grandma's got to be young enough. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. 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 So one of the things that Sarah and I talked about on our second episode, which was we recorded right after the um, Roe v. Wade overturning, Mm -hmm. you know, we asked why it seems like conservative women who are in leadership positions are able to balance big families and big jobs better than liberal women. For instance, Amy Coney. Amy Coney. Seems. seems Yes. Amy Coney Barrett's got seven kids. How I don't. That's bewildering to me. Well, she's got a. See, this is never talked about, but I think her husband has a sister who helped out a lot. And again, her husband's a partner in a law firm. He's not a stay-at-home dad. Like, and the thing is that that you know these families are trotted out. We saw this a little bit with Sarah Palin. I mean, obviously there was some dysfunction there, but but. You know, they, they are trotted out and the conservatives love to say, well, we don't need feminism. All these feminists are complaining about how exhausted they are and the juggling act and how they can't handle anything. And they're mad at their husbands and they're mad at the world. But yet these conservative women are just sort of floating along the surface like swans with their. Well, I feel like we're solving a problem here. We need, you need somebody from the gene pool in there. Period. Right. That yes. seems to be the necessary ingredient. So if you a don't sibling, have that, a yeah. grandparent. In right. there, in right. there, yeah. And I don't know why we need the gene pool, even, but we do seem to need the gene pool in there. It's something about, you know, look at all the data on if somebody outside the gene pool, the, the in, incidence of abuse and mis everything goes way, way up if it's not mm-hmm. from the gene mm-hmm. pool. Something about us, that's the way we are as humans. We got to accept that and get somebody from the gene yeah. pool. Yeah, um, doesn't yeah. have to be mom or dad, evidently. And Sarah also made an interesting point, which is that. She thinks, and again, I don't, I would never have thought of this because I don't have children, but like she thinks that in the conservative world, the idea of sacrificing big chunks of your life in order to raise your kids 
is celebrated. A, a virtue. Whereas in like our circles and you know in the, yeah. the coastal elites, yeah. like that's considered a weakness. If you are not it, it, trying it, to, yeah. You know, it's, it's a virtue. Yes. Where I would see it as a virtue, left would see it. The, the elites would see it as uh, foolish. Or just foolish. lame. Kind of lame. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Why like if you're that? not yeah. constantly looking for ways to, you know, broaden your horizons and travel, and I need to, yeah. you know, be self-actualized in all these ways, yeah. then that's a weakness. So I do. I think that was a fascinating point that that she made. And so you, we, you were starting to tilt at Gen Z and how they were different. What were you going to say there? Well, I interrupted you. It, I mean, it, it looks like – I mean the mental health crisis in Gen Z just seems off the charts. You would know True. more about this than it, I. It is. Um, and it looks but, like – But they could come out of that with like, hey, you fucked us up. We're going to do something different. Maybe so. I hope so. I, I kind of get the feeling that they've had an assful of the things that they have found painful. The overreach, the masking, the stay at home. So maybe they'll the, be you, like libertarians. Like, well, it's sort of like you freaked us out over what? They're, they're sort of like they're, – they're, I think they're coming into reality sooner than other generations and looking around and going, oh, fuck you. This, oh, this, you know. yeah. And at the same time, they have such disembodied lives. You with, know, the, the they, with the screens. Yeah, but, they, but they're the ones sort of learning to manage it, right? They're the ones that are going to figure I it out. I hope so. But I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about the gender ideology, but so much of that whole um, you know, phenomenon is rooted in not being able to separate like a virtual reality construct from actual reality. Like you, you think know. the gender stuff? Has oh yeah, because yeah, there's a whole you know there's a, like an anime culture around it. Oh yeah, there's there's a there's an aspect to it where if gender is gender, we can think of it as a construct because so much in the world it's just kind of the the, the metaverse. Like what is real? Oh, the the thing the, the reason that the gender thing fascinates me it's not because I really care what people do with themselves. I mean, obviously, I care if people if if young people are being medicalized and having their body parts cut off because clinicians and adults are, don't know any better. That's I think that's a medical scandal. Let's just be very clear. Uh, so, so let me yes. jump on that for a second and just say, yes. If the the to me the biggest issue, and I think I've expressed this to you before, is that these are medical interventions with medical treatments, whether they're surgical or medication being prescribed. Therefore, doctors are obliged to figure out the correct treatment for the correct patient, not. One treatment for everybody with yeah. symptoms, and they have not. And and I've seen them get it right. I think yes. I, I think I've seen cases where they really get it right. Yes, and I've seen cases where they really get it wrong. So they they are not there yet with selecting the appropriate treatment for the appropriate no, and, patient. And unfortunately, assessment has now been co-opted into this idea of conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is the term that the gender ideologues used for proper assessment. Mm -hmm. And we're so allergic to the idea of conversion therapy because it has such a dark history with gay people being, you know, praying the gay away, that that kind of thing. Every patient is not the same. Yeah, no, I, yeah. Then the other thing for me that I have, that I find, so that's my my one concern. My other concern, and this is what you were sort of talking about with all the weird fluid stuff online, is the job of adulthood is to come up with a stable identity. And the glorification of unclear identity, you know, it, and again, I'm not saying that you can't have a stable, clear transgender identity. You you can, yeah. But I'm saying we're in within that. We've glorified. I'm whatever. Fluidity. Man, I'm, yeah. It's, it's like you you haven't. You're not 
who are you? Yeah. That's part of the adult thing. And I've noticed that that has been like marginalized, like becoming becoming whole, becoming a person. No, that's just some old white that's man. That's basic. That's a, no, that's white supremacy. Really. Oh, that too. Yeah. Yes. And, and yes. so – and I'm sorry, but I just think that's – you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I just think that's – proper development. Yeah. And I I remember not having a cohesive identity. It's not comfortable. It doesn't feel good. It's called adolescence. Right. It's very miserable. <laughs> and so, you know, cohesing and having a changing identity, okay, but no identity, it's whatever today. Uh, I know. I well, I think that. one of the things that's happened is that we've confused personality traits with identity categories. So if you are – this whole – for instance, now there's all these categories like asexual, aromantic, yeah. demisexual, yeah. Yeah. you know, go well, down that there. and a lot of the asexuals I have seen in the clinical world actually have a medical problem, particularly the males. And so you're not allowed to first check, see if there's a medical issue first? Like before you identify, let's just make sure the biology is right. You mean like low sex drive kind of thing yeah. or what? Yeah. Yeah. Usually usually prolactin screening tumors, the pituitary gland, Kalman syndrome. There's lots of oh. things that can create that. Yeah. And you, you got to tr- – those are – they're dangerous. Right. So, oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. So I mean because I think about like, okay, so – you know, there are categories of like people who like like demisexual is I, I I'm only attracted. To, I'm only sexually attracted to people who I like personally. Okay. I think. OK. So you could just call that a, a thing about you, a personality yes, trait, yes. a way of a way of being yes. or, or or in some cases, a girl. Yeah. You could call that a woman. Let's just that's. That's also now you're possibility. getting into weird territory. Okay, um, but now that is <laughs> now like, you're Jordan Peterson. Yes, yeah, yeah. But yeah. now that's um, like a marginalized group. Yeah. Now it's a protected class. You know, I, I was just going to make a little sidebar. Um, I believe white supremacy exists. Okay, a- and I, I think it has the wrong name. I think it should be called like Eurocentric ignorance or something because I know I'm guilty of it and I work very, very, very hard. And, and part of the – you know, all these movements have good and bad, right? And part of the good for me is I've dropped the scales from my eyes repeatedly on things I just didn't know. I just didn't know because middle-class family, white, you're blah, 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 all that stuff. I would not – I just didn't know. And, that, and that's good that more people are moving out of their – whatever – unfortunately, it's kind of a violent term, white supremacy. But – Whatever. Well, just it's, out of your, out of your, you out, know, out of my pers- my own, pr- my own, widen uh, your it's, horizons. Yeah, it's ignorance. It's yeah. ignorance yes, is yes, what it yes. is. I mean, it's, it's ignorance. And uh, so, I'm here to say it's it's a good thing. Uh, I, I really value that that I've improved and better, and I feel guilty for some of my ignorance. But it's good, you know. Um, so I don't want to assail this exclusively. Um, but the excessive, the excesses that were the problem is, and that's how people get hurt. Yeah. Excesses. Yeah. And and so back to Sarah. Does she share these sorts of? Do you, where do you, where do you differ? Where do you differ? She. I mean, she tends. She's actually much more pessimistic than I am. So you know, well, our, I think millennials are generally pessimistic. our very first conversation. She mm-hmm. came on the Unspeakable, which is my it's my flagship podcast. Of course, let's not forget about the Unspeakable. Uh. So and she really, when it comes to things like institutional capture, the way that. 
the universities and the cultural institutions and increasingly corporations, just all of American life, cultural life, has been captured by this kind of misapplied social justice ideology. I see. see. She thinks that that's that's a one-way street. That's permanent. Yeah. And I actually think it's going to get so bad that it's going to have to to go. This pendulum's going to have to swing back. I think we're sort of moving that way. She, Are you, you're, I, you're on her side? No, no, oh. your side. That where the pendulum is starting. To yeah, kind of, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. I mean, you know, I want to also talk about this other project I have for. Um, I'm I'm building a community the for, um, for uh, the unspeakeasy for uh, it's uh, for women. It's a I, this is a very probably bad way to put this. It's like a it's like a women's shelter for the politically homeless. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is for it's an intellectual community for free thinking women. Can you be moderate and be I, there? I can't. Well, you have to be moderate. That's yeah, what I, but I mean, you okay. have the. That I cannot tell you how many women I hear from and I have heard from for the last several years who say I have lost my friends over this stuff. I am a liberal. I have never voted for a Republican. But between the you know between the the gender stuff and the COVID policies and the school closures and the lockdown and it's just a pileup of ideological you know battles. I, I feel like I'm going crazy and I feel completely alone. And I, I, at the moment, I have 500 women on a sign-up sheet telling me that they feel this way. And obviously, we're not alone. So I'm gonna I'm creating something really exciting around this. So, but so, but yeah. But what, back, what are people gonna get there? Why should they sign well, up? Well, they're gonna get. So um, I'm hoping to launch this in the fall. It's it's an online community um, for one thing. So we're gonna have. Um, different groups. We're going to have meetings, calls, ways for people to get together. We might have things like book clubs. We're going to have meetings that I'm involved in. There are going to be sub groups. So there could be smaller groups if you want to get together and talk about school policies, for instance, or, or COVID lockdown or things, but things like climate change. I mean, I had the list of things that people want to talk about from this point of view with I'm not even going to say like-minded women, but free-thinking women. Just, okay, just wanting to have wanting discourse, critical, open discourse, critical yeah. thinking yeah. women. Yeah, um, it, that's that's what we're going to be doing. But the really exciting thing is, I'm going to be offering uh, retreats where we get together, small groups, maybe fifteen, twenty, and we that'll be cool. Go someplace beautiful, and we. Everybody brings something to the table, and we basically have like um, like an ideas vacation. You, you should have a writing sort of write something at the end of it. You yeah. know what? This is actually how I got the idea for this because yeah. I've been tr- I've been teaching private writing workshops, yeah. which Paulina was yes, in my class. Aware. Yes, she loved it. Uh, she was. I loved having her in the class. And but increasingly, the writing workshops started to be people coming to me, and they didn't even want to write; they just wanted to talk about this stuff. <laughs> So I'm like, why are we – I mean I still teach writing workshops, but it's like, why are we bothering writing here? Like let's have it just like an intellectual project here. Now, even all my woke family and friends are starting to soften a bit. They are. Because it's, it's – as they would say, exhausting. Well, I've heard the younger ones say, oh, that's so 2019. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh really? Well, in 2019, right. I was saying the same. I thing. was in this. I was into this <laughs> band in 2014. <laughs> That's really funny. No, they, they were when they say 2019, they say the the woke, the excess woke. That's yeah. Like, oh, that's our 2019. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> that, that was. I think that people are looking at that as kind of the peak. Or 2020 or something when they when they it was it was unassailable. It's it yeah it is starting to change. But the, you know the battles there it's getting uglier and uglier. You can see that they're losing because the battles are getting 
uglier and mm-hmm. the cancellations and the people losing their jobs. It's well, it, just well, it feels like some of that blowing. same energy has now shifted over to the abortion thing. And, and I noticed something about myself is I don't I don't have an emotional reaction to all these things. It, it's interesting because so I can so I can see both sides and and I'm sympathetic to both sides, frankly. And, and where I get emotional is when things affect good practice of medicine. Yeah. So I get emotional when doctors get transgender treatment wrong. That freaks me out. Yes. But the same thing on abortion. Abortion is a medical procedure and a doctor and a patient should be making that decision when it's really necessary. And the people that are interfering with that, fuck them. I, I have a real problem with that. So that's sort of where my emotion is. But but I see, keep seeing the excesses in the emotion or the uh, the emotions around the abortion argument. For instance, the people complaining most are in states where things not only haven't changed, they're even more protected than they've ever been. Well, yeah. And I'm like, what? because we what? there's a, because those people care and they voted for legislators that are going to do what they want. Yeah, I, I, why are you complaining? You're, you're, you're well, just, they're, worried about, come here they're worried about here. other people. Yeah, I mean, this is come what here. I've said. I you know I had an unspeakable interview um, in May when the when the leak happened, the Supreme Court leak. I had this woman on named Frances Kissling, who's a legendary reproductive rights <gasps> activist. Mm. And she's in her late 70s now. She was actually working in an abortion clinic in New York before Roe was passed, mm. when abortion was only legal in a few states, including mm-hmm. New York. Mm-hmm. And she wants to reframe this whole discussion so that As? we're not talking about going to state houses in red states and trying to get them to flip and, you know, doing all this picketing. She says, do all that if you want. Go picket, go protest. Okay. But we have to give up on those states. The country is divided. Yeah. We have half the states. Yeah. So what we need More to do is focus like 30. on making yeah, on, on making abortion services accessible. To everybody. Forget yeah. about yeah, yeah. it. Because the fact is, yeah. in a lot of those states, it was pretty damn hard to get an abortion as it was. And I don't mean to minimize this because yeah. actually Sarah and I did talk about this on the on the podcast the other day and, and a couple of people just thought we were sounding glib about it or cavalier. And, and I don't mean to do that. I understand it's extraordinarily upsetting, but you know, one thing actually, I I'm curious what you think, because I know you've talked a lot about the, the abortion pill and how this yeah. is going to change the contours of this a little bit. Um, you know, because people, they're going to be able to get the pills. pills. We're not yeah. going to have coat hanger. No, you but, are not going to have But that. at the same time, so I'm curious. So like a lot of the news media, I, I've, been, I've been reading news stories in places like the New York Times and the New Yorker just in the last, you know, in the, in the you know, days after Roe was yeah. overturned. Like the tenor of these pieces are like, oh, these women are being turned away from they're the abortion die. clinic and now they're going to have to go. Yeah. Like there was a piece in the New Yorker that ended with this woman in Houston saying, well, I guess – I know somebody told me that there's a guy, there's a Mexican guy who can do this for me. So maybe yeah. I'll call him. No, I, I, my daughter gave me that one too. And I said, stop doing that. It weakens you. It makes, it's nonsense. It weakens your argument. Stop. Get over that and talk about the reality of women without resources having to figure this out and how ridiculous, how awful that is for them. And that we have to really plan for that. Like this woman you're, you're interviewing was saying, you got to plan for that, create resources for that, really talk about the, the, there's so many different, egregious situations we've created with this. There's lots of nasty situations, certain horrible de- degenerative disorders of the central nervous system that you can't detect until the second trimester, you know, and things like that that if somebody's oh, yeah. going to bring to term and then what do you do with that? And there's just all kinds of horrible things. Medical, let the doctors do their job. Let us do our job and, and things will work out because there's only one person that will represent the patient and the fetus. That's us. We'll always do that. But anyway, that's that's a separate issue. My fear is, and this is something I've said forever, <clears throat> that if you're going to 
talk about life begins at conception, which is sort of become the 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 what shall I say the standard mm-hmm. the standard uh, sort of phil- philosophical position rather than getting into the nuances about implantation or blah 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 they 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 backed away from that and, and just everyone just said it starts at it starts at conception okay at least that potential life a unique potential is created at conception I'll grant you that the problem is there are shit tons of things that interfere with implantation are you going to outlaw all of that are you going to outlaw because of your sacrosanct position, your philosophical mandate? You're going to have to get rid of IUDs. You're going to have to get rid of the morning after pill. And you're going to have to get rid of all hormonal contraceptives because all, all of them have a potential, not common, but a potential to interfere with implantation. Is that where we're going? Yeah. That that worries me. Well, we're going to call their bluff, right? I mean, it's yeah. really like they they set themselves up for this and I this sounds very crass and again, I don't I am as pro-choice as it gets, but it's like, okay, you know what guys have at it. See what you created. In, you in those red states. Yeah. Like you're yeah, going well, to have to deal with the consequences that's, that's of your politics. That's kind of how I feel too. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel too. And it's you know, like I, 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 the word egregious comes to me. Like these, there's going to be protean egregious circumstances created and you can't even predict them there are so many and if you left it to the medical system we'll handle it we'll deal with it we'll make the right choices and stuff like that if you if you want to legislate that there's not enough yeah. creativity to come up with all the different circumstances oh my god the bounty the bounty hunters yeah. in texas like someone wants you if you want a quick ten thousand dollars all you have to do is uh turn your neighbor in for uh oh having, well, traveling that's, that's, to another that's, state to have an abortion well that's the part that scares me too which is you know if you're going to mail people the abortion pill what really is their risk and yeah it? i know i'm curious i know yeah. you've I'm, I'm yeah maybe that's for another conversation so, so, but but you and i are sort of moderate on this wouldn't you say we're sort of yeah, trying to try to navigate I'm a squish, we're, yeah we're always. trying to navigate we're, we're sort of we're pro-choice but we're trying to navigate. Yeah, I mean, the problem yeah. here is that the whole discussion has been guided by the two extremes. You've got the yeah. the, Again. the extreme people on the right who say, you know, nothing you know, every, nothing should be allowed. Contraception should barely be allowed. And then you've got people on the left who only want abortion on demand. If, if you, you know, suggest something like, how about 15-week cutoff, which is frankly what is they have through most of Europe. No, no, no. That's not enough. That's yeah. not enough. Yeah. And so there was never enough nuance in this discussion yep. and Agreed. now it's biting them in the butt. Uh, uh, both sides. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. All right, we got to wrap this thing up. We, you and I, could talk all day. We should talk some more. As I said, come, Always. come more, come more. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to hear more of Megan, go to a special place in hell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that goes without saying. And you right? can also read their Substack at a specialplace.substack.com. I think you you put up some tweets from the Substack last couple of days. I think I saw. Yeah. Uh oh! I just Here's gave a little preview of what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. There's a yes, Got and then it. and the unspeakable podcast. Unspeakable yes. podcast. The unspeakable podcast. dot com. The book. The problem with everything. Uh, and if you want to sign up to be one of those uh, free thinking, well. Free thinking is not a strong enough word. W- women that want to have open discourse without being canceled. <laughs> need to think of a better word. Well, it's just that women who want to talk without being canceled, which is one, you know, one so of the, norm, how about like norm, normal, 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 normal discourse. Yeah. Normal women community. <laughs> uh, Megan's website is megandom.com. Oh no, actually, if you want to, yeah, the unspeakeasy. If you want to join the community, the un, well, for my, there's too many websites. I yeah, know I need yeah. to get rid of them. The unspeakeasy.com is where you, you go for the you community. You should keep them all, but have them all available in one place. I know. Megandom.com is where they show yeah, yeah so something we'll like that. Um, again, uh, I could list all of Megan's um, accomplishments, 2015 Guggenheim Fellowship, 2016 National Endowment for the Arts <laughs> They'd Fellowship. They never give me those now, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, well, 
<laughs> I, I, you know, but, I'm glad I got right in under the wire. Yeah, but like you were saying, that the pendulum does tend to swing. Yeah. It, it just takes a it takes a long time, and that's sort of that's been one of the the I would say surprising, but the one of the messages I've received. Now, you know, as you get older, you you start to see more of a historic sweep. You see the sweep of things and the change and how they change. I'm surprised how slow things change. Yep. Patience. That, that that is the thing. You be but but that I do have faith that reality tends to assert itself. That that tends to be the direction. It's just impossible to be otherwise. Reality just pushes through always. And and I'm a little Hegelian in that we go one extreme, then the other extreme, and then we come back to yeah. the middle with some good good from both. We we synthesize some aspects that we like I said, like my scales falling from my eyes to be more insightful and pay more attention to things I didn't experience and I should know. My lived experience yeah. didn't teach it to yes, me. Yes, yes. So All right, well that's uplifting. Yes. Yeah. We're gonna leave it with that. So Megan, thank you so much and thank uh, you. we will see everybody next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with the go-to person to help negotiate a hostage situation in Syria when no other intelligence agency would help. When you have a hostage negotiation, especially in a war zone, the first thing you have to do is tell the parents to stop doing something that they want to do and that every schmuck under the sun is telling them to do, which is to seek public support, right? To get public statements, to do Facebook campaigns. What just happens with that is your price went up before you even started a negotiation. You do not want to drive up the perceived value of the hostage. Sometimes people are taken hostage just for the shock value of executing them. What you're going to do with the campaign that you're doing right now is going to get your child or your spouse killed. How is pissing off the people who hold that person's life in their hands helping you? By the time I get involved, it's usually too late. To learn all about the nuances of negotiating with criminals and human traffickers, check out episode 617 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. All this month, stream the funniest films for free on Pluto TV. Watch comedy classics like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and Mean Girls. Or drop in for a Tyler Perry marathon with a Medea family funeral and Medea's witness protection. Pluto TV also has hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows like Get Shorty, Be Cool, Key and Peel, Comedy and Color, and more. And no contracts, no subscriptions, no fees, no joke. So download the Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start laughing today. Pluto TV, drop in, watch free.